Welcome to Ripstop on the Record, a podcast where fabric enthusiasts and DIY gurus discuss all things make your own gear, with the occasional poor attempt at comedy to keep it interesting. I'm Kyle Baker, the owner and founder of Ripstop by the Roll, and we're excited to have you listening. Joining us for episode 38 of Ripstop on the Record, I'm Avery. And I'm Jameson, and I'm recording for the very first time in our brand new warehouse. It's kind of a wreck, you can see around, but it's our wreck and it is slowly becoming home. We're officially out of all the other facilities and we're cranking out orders to get to your sewing table soon. And thank you to everyone who participated in our podcast development survey. We do the podcast because we want to bring you the content and information that you can't find anywhere else. Knowing what you want to hear is incredibly valuable to us, and we can't thank you enough for all of those who filled out our survey. Special shout out to the winners, Matt B., Kathleen M., and Underhills. So shout you guys out. Congrats on your gift cards. So now getting into the podcast, March 8th is International Women's Day, and there's a ton of great women in the cottage industry, but today we're highlighting just one. We'll be talking to Hannah Trim, the founder of a Colorado-based cottage company called So Alpine. Hannah defines the name of her one-woman show by saying, uh, So Alpine is a pun because it's spelled S-E-W. She sews, but she also wants to, uh, to remind everybody that it's always good to poke a little fun at what you're doing. Never take yourself too seriously. Hannah creates bike bags, hip packs, rescue sleds, and all sorts of four-season mountain adventures uh, while adding an appropriate amount of flair. She adds a ton of color to her gear. So Alpine runs a drop-style shop to promote the work-life balance and healthy workload. If you like what you're hearing from Hannah and from the So Alpine shop, check out the show notes to see more of her products. She just did a drop today on March 1st. Shout out to all of the women out there who are leading the charge in making their industry, sports, and communities a better place for women of the future and really just better for all of us. So thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Hannah. We are stoked to have you on for International Women's Day. Thanks for having me. Of course. We've been following your journey since the beginning, and we know that you started So Alpine just over a year ago. Can you tell us a little bit about where the idea came from and what inspired you to start making your own gear? Sure. Um, I've been making stuff for as long as I can remember. Um, So I think part of that is just like a little bit of my personality. But... I kind of long story short, I used to work in outdoor education and as a mountain guide for a long time. And there are big parts of that that I love, like being outside all the time and getting to meet really awesome people. Um, But when the pandemic happened, I wasn't really sure if I was going to have work the next year. So I started looking for other options and I was a little like burnt out on the seasonal work too, and just working really hard, not getting paid that much. And taking on a lot of personal risk too. Um, And so I tried to do more traditional office jobs. I lasted about six months and couldn't do it anymore. And I had been making some bike bags for friends and was getting more and more requests for those. And I was like, okay, well, we're just going to try it and see how it goes and gave myself like three months to try it and then reevaluate. And at the end of three months, it was like, well, it's kind of working. I should keep going. 
Um, so now we're at the beginning of year two and I'm like, okay, we're going to do another year and reevaluate and see how it's going after that. Your story is really hitting home and it's something that I feel like we've heard so many DIYers and other people who are creating gear for small cottage companies um, mention all the way from always having your hands in a project to kind of living outdoors to the obligatory, my friend wanted me to make them a bike bag (laughs) to now you're just making them for everyone, which is super rad. Um, so thank you for sharing that. You mentioned that you were an outdoor guide. Do you want to tap on that real quick and talk about where some of the places you've guided? Sure. Um, I've been working in outdoor ed for over a decade now. I think I started just working in the tiny, like 30 by 30 foot climbing wall at my local gym. Um, and then that progressed to working at Colorado college where I went to school and managed the climbing gym there and helped like really build out the outdoor ed program. And, um, after that, I worked for outward bound based out of Colorado for eight or so years. I'd say I'm like temporarily retired. We might step back into that (laughs) at some point. (laughs) Um, and I was really lucky with outward bound to work all over, um, the Western U S. So, Colorado, Utah, California, Wyoming, Alaska, Ecuador. And then I've also worked for the High Mountain Institute um, and did this really awesome gap program with them. So working with students in between high school and whatever the next step is going to be for them. And we've gotten to go to Patagonia with that program. Um, And then I worked as a mountain guide in the Tetons too. Wow. So you've really kind of been all over the place with outdoor education and guiding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Trying to see all the cool places. Most definitely. I feel like that's a lot of our life goals, which is why we start making all of this gear to hopefully take us to these places one day. Um, Mm -hmm. Cool. So I think that kind of goes into our next question. Yeah. Hannah's really just checked off my bucket list is what I've realized. You you basically (laughs) lived it for me. (laughs) Um, You've done a lot of high kind of high alpine skiing, high mountain type stuff. And that kind of is reflected into even one of your products um, with your sled. Tell us about the rescue sled that you made, why you ended up designing that and what it's like trying to make something that's kind of important to get right. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, there's so many pieces that go into it, but um, I'm really lucky to be able to work with a local guiding company here, San Juan Expeditions, um, and Jack Klim, who's the operations manager there, um, is really great at saying like, hey, we've got this idea. Let's see if we can make it happen. Um, So there have been a couple other sleds and Brooks Range used to make one and they went out of business, which was so heartbreaking for me because I love their stuff. Um, And then the other sleds that are available right now are generally really ultralight, which I have so much respect for everyone who's into the super ultralight game. But after working for so long with Outward Bound, I tend to want to make things that are really durable and are going to last a long time watching kids just like destroy their (laughs) tents. Um, I think it's really highlighted for me that to keep ultralight gear in good shape, you have to be really gentle with it, or at least be really specific about how you use it. And I think some folks are really into that and they're really looking for that, which is awesome. But I can't expect everyone to have that level of care for their gear. 
Um, and a lot of the guides who work here teach a lot of avalanche courses. So they would be expected, at least in the past, to have their own sled, pay a bunch of money for it, wait a long time to get it, and then be expected to use that on courses with brand new students who've never used one before, potentially in like pretty rotten snow conditions, depending on what day it is. And um, so it's just a bummer watching all these sleds shred or break after not that many uses when they're really designed to be ultralight, hopefully never get used. And if they do get used, really only be used once. Um, so we decided to make one that was a lot more durable and kind of fit the specific need of teaching a little better. So the first model I came up with was, we're just calling it the OG sled because that's fun. Um, and so we made it in like fun, bright colors, but really durable materials too. And we added some specific features like extra hand loops that are bigger. So students, you can have like five students on either side carrying someone mm. or pulling them um, and everyone gets a chance to practice versus if you're trying to go ultralight, like maybe you wouldn't need quite as many straps. Um, so some, we added some little details like that. And it's been so cool to watch like at this point, dozens maybe even hundreds of students have used these sleds and they're still looking great. I think that's a really interesting story all the way from um, maybe doing the ski stuff by yourself to taking on a responsibility where you are an outdoor educator and I have some experiences and well, but uh, you have to carry all this extra gear that you wouldn't maybe take out on a personal journey if you were just going out with your friends. Um, so it's really interesting to hear how that framework kind of changed for you going from uh, people using the ultralight sleds that are never supposed to be used to trying to teach and educate with them with these like rowdy kids who are overzealous <laughs> and like really tugging on things. Um, so I just find that story really fascinating. Thanks. And I know that your gear goes beyond the rescue sleds and to dog gear and bike bags as well. So you've probably prototyped many things before. And I was curious if you had a story about the trial and error process of creating a new piece of gear from scratch. Totally. Yeah, I was just prototyping this weekend because I, I do custom orders for people too, which is such a fun process for me, for someone to show up and say, I want this really specific thing. Can you make it? Um, so it's a great challenge, but it's also really cool to see them get exactly what they're looking for instead of maybe something that doesn't quite fit and they make it work. And um, I really love trying to keep items in use as long as possible, like minimize the amount of petroleum product stuff that we're consuming too. Um, but it takes forever. Prototyping is so hard. And I usually end up making something like I turned this bag inside out. This is amazing. And then realized that the computer that's supposed to fit into it doesn't quite fit. And so now I need to take the whole top off and redo it again. Um, but I think like one of the, the biggest learnings for me more in the production side was actually with the sleds. Um, so we have the, the OG sled and then we're also making a lightweight sled too. that does fit that ultralight purpose a little better. Um, but I'm still like, we made a whole version of it, sold several, they were great, but we did have one incident, um, of someone using the sled, not exactly as designed and part of it ripped. And so it was certainly like 
it was a little outside of what they're designed to be used for, but I really had trouble with that and was up many nights, like stressing about it in the middle of the night, just thinking if someone is in an emergency situation and they need, they need to use a sled to evacuate their buddy. I really don't want them to have to worry about like, is this going to last well? Am I using it right? I want people to be able to just use them and know that they're going to work. So we're trying to step it up a notch and we're like going back and forth on a bunch of fabrics right now. Hopefully we'll have like lightweight sled 2.0 ready by the end of this month. Um, but that was, that was an interesting challenge for me, just going from like prototyping on a personal level to prototyping on the business level too. And it's important to me having had many close calls in the backcountry too, to be able to make this gear that could help someone out. Um, but it's definitely stressful as like a mostly one person operation of two other gals that like work for me part-time. Um, but it's pretty much just me making these decisions and I'm not like REI or someone that has like a whole team to lean on in that. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of learning like on the business end. What, components make a great sled like i don't even know where to begin with like what fabrics you would use or what components you would use or, or what yeah just what what makes a great rescue sled <laughs> totally well a rescue sled in itself is like a ridiculous idea to start with you're using a piece of fabric to drag someone along the snow um in order to pull them out because if we think about hiking um when it's not snowy like you can only walk so far during a day and i know like through hikers can walk way faster than I can and go a lot further. Um, but you, if you're just walking, like it's just you and whatever you're carrying and you can't walk at least in the lower 48, like there are a few places you can get super far away from a road, but on skis, you can get pretty far away pretty quickly. And then if you did get hurt or like your skis broke or you broke your leg or you can't get yourself out like that, it just becomes way more challenging with snow because you don't have like firm ground to walk on. So the idea of like post holing through snow is so exhausting. So that's why the sled idea is like, you would take this tarp, basically it's a glorified tarp with straps on it and stick your skis into it and then use whatever you have in your backpack to kind of like pad the whole situation to make an improvised litter. And then the whole thing velcros up and straps up tight and you can slide the person out. Um, but in any other setting, we would use something hard bottomed, like a plastic okay. sled or a toboggan, like you would see at a ski resort sure. or something like that. Um, so for me, one of the most important parts is to have a really durable sliding surface on the bottom. Um, so with our OG sled, we use the Hyper D 300, which I love. And I love that it comes in fun colors too. <laughs> um, but so that's been a big challenge, like trying to find a light enough weight fabric that's also really durable and waterproof and tear resistant. And some of the trouble we've been having is just figuring out something that's like waterproof enough while also being pretty tear resistant. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you catch just like a little piece of ice on the bottom, you could rip the whole thing. Gotcha. So you're really, you're creating the the foundation for everything else to kind of work within because you're, you're going to put the litter down you're going to have the skis into that you just need something to wrap everything and the person up into right <laughs> yeah exactly and then have it gotcha. be like we sew lots of webbing straps on it so that then you can pull the person or carry and lift them for short distances gotcha. and then we also set it up so that you can use the tarp as a shelter if you had to spend the night out um either like a frame style or um one 
popular way to do it. If you have a lot of time on your hands is to dig like a huge trench and then lay your skis over the top and then lay the tarp over the top of that. And then kind of like pack it in around the corners and everything. Um, and then we also want it to be able to be used as a bivy sack too. So it's, it's a little bit of a tall order for some fabric. to be able to <laughs> Yeah. Display. That is a lot of tasks at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned Hybrid E300. What's one fabric that you love that you would always use if you could, but, you know, enlighten us if you have some other favorite fabrics as well. Oh, this is, I meant to prep more for this question because it's so hard for me. Um, I do really love the Hybrid E. We do the, the wings of the OG sled out of the 2.2 Hex 70. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that feels. Um, but I think my answer would actually be like the 210 grid stop which I don't actually like make stuff out of to sell just yet but I think that's my favorite fabric just how it feels um I have an old chilo gear pack that I'm gonna keep keep it going like as long as physically possible um and the sides of that are made out of the 210 yeah that stuff's awesome the robic that whole robic line is really it it's a great fabric part. I mean, it's a great fabric on its own, like full stop. However, it is also a really uh, cost-effective pack fabric, which makes it that much more enticing, you know, to get mm-hmm. something that performs that well can be really difficult at that price point. Awesome. So I am actually a wilderness first responder and I'm assuming with all of your experience as well that you would be. And I think it's so important that someone is making this gear and then also using it. Like a lot of times at a larger company or REI, we have these brands, right? And there's hundreds of thousands of people and they're making a piece of gear top down and it's going out, but they might actually never use that rescue sled. And as someone who has this sort of like backcountry medical training, you know that there's when you're doing an evac situation, the last thing you want to do is have the equipment you're using break or have the person who is injured get hurt worse. (laughs) So whether that be from like hitting a rock or the sled breaking, and now you're uh, having a potential hypothermia situation and all of that. So I think that there is so much power to what you're doing and having hands on and there's doesn't seem like a better way for your gear to be tested than to give it to maybe like 10 teenagers to teach them how to do like you said because no one is going to be harder on their gear than a bunch of teenagers (laughs) so I definitely wanted to mention that um because I think a lot of times people might hear like, oh, rescue sled, that's so cool. But I think with your knowledge and background, there's a lot more that's going into this idea than what people might realize. So I wanted to give you the props and the accolades um, for that as well. Thanks. Yeah, it's awesome to be able to, like, with each prototype, just pass it off to a group of guides and say, like, go thrash this and let me know, like, hand it back to me. I want to see where it breaks when you're done. Absolutely. And people there's, I mean, that's how you have to go through this kind of scientific process. You need it to be used multiple times by different people in different situations and different weather and different environments and things like that. Um, So I think that's such an important piece of the making and prototyping process is getting it in the hands of the right people and then knowing and listening to that feedback and being like, okay, 
we can tweak it here, add a few extra stitches here. So I think that story is really fascinating. Um, what has it been like to start your own gear company um, only a year later? And what would some words of wisdom be that you'd offer to someone who is looking to do the same? Um, it's been a roller coaster for sure. I think what I would like, what I would advise someone else looking to do it would be like, if you really want to do it, definitely do it and trust your gut. Um, and just be ready for like all the stuff that's going to come up that you're not expecting. A lot of the hardest parts for me, not having a business background have been like figuring out how to be sales tax compliant in the state of Colorado or how to do like my business licensing, like all the little stuff that I think we, we know about, but maybe don't think so much about in terms of running a business. Like, oh yeah, I'll figure that out and it'll be done. And what I've learned is like, it's never done. Some of the parts get a little easier, but there's always a bunch of stuff that needs to get dealt with like immediately that you can't plan for. Um, so that's kind of been the hardest for me with like trying to scale a little bit um, while also staying like really connected to the values behind my business. Um, and in order to do that, like we've got to bring in more sales, but in order to bring in more sales, we need like more people to be able to pump stuff out. And then I will like be so excited. Like yesterday I finished four sleds and like, this is awesome. I'm feeling so productive today. I was planning to do a bunch more and who knows what's going to pop up like with taxes or whatever that I'm going to have to go deal with that then pulls me away from actually finishing stuff. So I think just balancing all of that. And, um, and I, I mean, I've learned for me, this is the life lesson that I keep learning over and over again, but like just to not be too hard on myself as I'm going through it. Um, and like celebrate all the little wins as they come along too. So before we move over to topic two, what's, what's something that you would want people to know about? So Alpine, you have an amazing bio that we'll kind of touch on in the intro, but before we kind of take away, what's something you just want them to know about your company and, and your products and what you do? Yeah, I think, um, what I would love for people to know is like all the intention that we put into the backside of things. So is really important to me, especially after like working for a bunch of nonprofits that had awesome mission statements, but maybe couldn't always follow through on everything. Like that if I'm going to be running a business, I want to do it in a way that I can believe in. Um, so for one thing, like we do everything possible to source all our materials from us distributors and manufacturers. Um, so like some of that stuff is getting made overseas, but it's really important to me to make sure that we're like keeping our, our dollars local. Um, so like, for example, buying fabric from you all so that we're like supporting human beings or like, we can like see the, the names and faces too, um, instead of like sending that money overseas where someone might not be getting paid as much as they would be getting paid here. Um, so that, that's like a really critical part to me is trying to keep everything as us based as possible. Um, and then also trying to be as climate conscious as possible too. So we save every single scrap. We have like multiple bins of different sizes of scraps, um, even down to like all the threads that get cut off of things. We save all of those and our plan, which hasn't, we're not quite there, but we're getting really close. We have like all these little scrap pieces of fabric that we use just testing tension and everything. Um, and those all get sewn together and we're going to make some like limited edition pillows out of them and then stuff them with all the threads, which I think will be really fun. 
Um, and then all the bigger pieces, we save and use them in other projects too. So if I need just like a little two by two inch square for a zipper cap or something, like I'll go pull it out of the scrap bin instead of cutting a new one. Um, so we try and just like really minimize waste as much as possible. I think in the last year, I wasn't able to like totally save all my trash because I had to move twice and there's a bunch of like life nonsense involved in that. Um, but I think that we produced like less than 50 gallons of trash in the last year. Um, so really trying to focus on that. And then by doing everything made to order, we can just order like just as much fabric as we need and make sure we're going to use all of it. Um, instead of like ordering something to try it and then being left with like 10 yards that might not get used or even just like a couple feet here and there, like we will not throw things away. Um, and then the, the like longer term goals with the values end are to make this like a really awesome, sustainable place for people to work too. So probably take a little while to get there, but for me, it was really important to make a job with um, really solid work, work life balance. I was really tired of just like working all the time. Um, which turns out when you start a business, you work all the time, um, <laughs> which I guess I could have imagined, but, um, the goal is to eventually create four day work weeks as the standard for everyone. So that it's just like a known that you'll have three days every week to go be outside, go take care of yourself, do all of that stuff. Um, and then hopefully to be able to like pay a really solid living wage and offer good benefits. So that's like long-term trajectory where we're trying to go. Your, your concepts are so inspiring because even as a, a fairly established company now, there's still things that we struggle to do just because when, when you, you know how companies work, things are always rolling. Like you said, you're always working on something and, totally. and you know, it's much easier to do the, the taxes, you know, take care of that because there's legal implications than, yeah. you know, work, then focus on the recycling scraps, you know, <laughs> like doing mm -hmm. those things. But um, it's one, it is one of the cool things about talking to cottage companies uh, and hearing about what they do, because there is a lot of passion behind what you do. You know, very few people, I don't think I've ever heard a child say they want to grow up and have a cottage company, but a lot of people that now <laughs> do it, it is their passion and they feel really excited about it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of really cool concepts coming out of the small businesses and um, a, a lot of great reasons behind that. So I want to start to transition to the second topic. Not that we're not talking about So Alpine anymore, but we're expanding that to be a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. um, so brief recap coming up for all the listeners is International Women's Day and um, coming up here soon. So we wanted to talk to Hannah to not be the only person, but to be a small representation of women in the outdoor and the MYOG industry. Uh, something that I thought is really interesting is the data that we see on men versus women on our site is really interesting. Almost always about 70% men. Um, and not that we believe in the traditional gender roles in this sense, but traditionally speaking, a lot more women are exposed to sewing than men. So it's very odd when we all of a sudden see that totally flipped that like 70% of people <laughs> are guys on our website, sewing and making gear, which is rad, but it's still super interesting that we see such a large discrepancy. Why do you think MYOG has that, that number gap? Oof. Um, it's such a big question and like such a big topic too. It's, yeah. <laughs> and something like that I've thought about on, on so many planes in the work that I've done too, most of my outdoor jobs, I was the only or one of the few women in the given situation, like in the American um, Mountain Guides Association courses that I've done, I was generally the only woman who was there. So it was interesting to kind of see that like also true in the MYOG world too. Um, my 
my guess is just like that there it's kind of a culture piece and there's some intimidation factor too. like making your own stuff does require a lot of like tinkering problem solving kind of like engineering mindset that I think sometimes we associate with stereotypes of like a handyman or a carpenter or someone um, and maybe a little less so with like seamstresses or or whatever um but I think too there's a little bit more of a culture of um and like stereotypical culture of men in the outdoors being really specific about their gear and wanting like this super ultralight thing that's going to do exactly this and only weigh four ounces and then I'll keep my total pack weight to whatever um and I think there is a little more of a stereotypical culture of women like wanting to get outside and have like a really supportive environment and being okay carrying a little more um so my guess is that's why it it's also showing up here, but I certainly don't want to speak for everyone in any way. <laughs> yeah, we know that that is definitely a super loaded question. And one thing that mm-hmm. I was thinking about when I was reading more about you and your experience as a guide um, was that piece that you kind of just touched on that mm-hmm. there are just less women in general who may be recreate in the outdoors or feel confident enough to do so alone. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I was a guide in the Great Smoky Mountains. And it was funny because, and you might have a similar experience, but all of our trips, it would be like nine women and then one man. And everyone is like, well, wow, there's so many women on these trips. And I was like, yeah, because men are going to like walk out of their house with their Walmart tarp and whatever else they have in their little rucksack. (laughs) And they are just going to be like, I have no plans. I didn't check the weather. I'm just going for it. And women, I feel like are the opposite. They're like, they want to plan six months in advance. They want to like book their trip with other women to feel confident, which I love and I'm so much about. But I do think that there is... It's an interesting dialect from just women recreating outdoors and how that is carrying over to NYOG. So thanks for uh, giving us a little insight on what you think it is. Um, I know it's there's no real answer to the question. We were just curious and it's something that I think about all the time. And to that degree, what advice do you have for other women in the NYOG industry? Yeah, I think... Uh, I think it like really plays off of what you just said about like men being more willing to just go like figure it out, like just go try it and whatever happens happens and we'll make it work. And I think that would be my advice for women getting into this too, is like, this is a pretty low consequence way to just go try it. And if you totally fail, that's okay. Um, And if anyone needs scrap fabric, let me know and I'll send you some. Um, But I think that, I think just culturally, like a lot of a lot of women were taught to, if we're going to do something, especially if it's out of the norm to do it perfectly and to make sure you can do it perfectly before even trying, which is ridiculous and pretty much impossible anyway. Um, and I would say like, just go get a piece of fabric and try to figure it out. Um, and if you can find mentors that can help you, I think that's a great, um, a great way to step into it in a little more comfortable realm too. But one thing that I love about sewing is like, if I, totally botch it it's just going to be a pile of fabric that doesn't work and I can start over again versus like Mm -hmm. something more high consequence like climbing or skiing if you totally botch it it could have like more serious ramifications so we just asked you a fairly hard question but I'm going to ask you maybe even a more challenging question (laughs) 
there's so we just talked about the huge discrepancy how there's a ton of guys in the outdoor industry and in the myog industry Mm -hmm. and i would venture to say and i would hope that a lot of them are really well intentioned but intentions don't mean a whole lot if you still mess up a situation (laughs) or if you're still really offensive or if you say something that you really shouldn't be saying what Mm -hmm. advice would you give to well-intentioned guys in the myog and outdoor industry to be more inclusive to help bring that number to more of a 50 50 split This is such a hard question, but I think such an important one. And I'll just like in all seriousness too, like I've had several situations in the outdoor world that were um, pretty inappropriate, like borderline abusive in the like male female dynamic too. And that's a big reason why I'm not guiding anymore. And I'm doing this job, um, trying to like make a more inclusive space in whatever way I can, but also trying to take care of myself in the same way. Um, So I think what I would say to guys out there trying to be well-intentioned is like intention versus impact is really important. Just like you said, that your impact still matters regardless of whatever the intention was. Um, But I think like the number one way to practice that is to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Um, These are conversations that I have with my guy friends and my husband often of like, okay, I know you didn't mean anything by that tone, but it actually felt like pretty exclusive to me or uninviting. Um, And I think like as much as we can do to have compassion and empathy for people who are not in the same situation as us or um, maybe experience the world in a different way from us is probably the best step because I don't know what any of the like easy fix solutions would be, but trying to take on another perspective is as far as I can tell the best first step to that. Absolutely. I think it is such a challenge still. And I think sometimes um, it's hard for people to see that other point of view or that other side when they have walked their whole life in their own pair of shoes. Um, But yeah, I think just having this conversation and opening it up to see and hear the other side of how people might uh, view things or perceive them out however they are recreating so yeah and I think it goes so far I mean it extends to like all people like everything does but um that was a big learning for me working for Outward Bound there were some trips that we would do each year um with students who um like the majority of that group came from a community of people who had family members or friends who had come over from Mexico many of whom like um not through like legal channels. And so they'd had to cross the border in a really scary way. And so it was really interesting working with those students and trying to instill a love for being outside with them and pretty quickly realized like, okay, their experience being outside was terrible and scary for all these really deep reasons that I'll never understand. And so like, I need to do my best to be able to step into their perspective and try and make this like a more inviting situation for them too, even though being outside is my favorite thing in the entire world. I can't just turn around and expect them to have the same feeling or experience about it. I think this does play really interesting to some of the things you said earlier about So Alpine, how you are trying to be as environmentally conscious as possible, because I think, I'm hoping one of the positives of COVID is that it became a lot more normal for people to get outside, like state parks and local parks became super flooded, which 
uh, you know, to people that like being out there a lot, it can be hard to see our local trails that used to be quiet, be really, really busy. But I'm hoping that we start to see that number of, you know, traditionally like white males being outside to maybe expanding to be a little bit more uh, diverse in every direction. Um, so it's kind of funny how both of those connect at like more dollars and more time and energy spent towards like trail maintenance to building trails and just in general to conserving a little bit or conserving what we use and, and using a little bit less maybe make it makes a difference hopefully <laughs> <laughs> totally and then and just like trying to make it a more welcoming space for people who like don't have the experience with gear that we do too like i mm-hmm. i think it's so awesome seeing people out in jeans or like whatever they have like you you don't need the fanciest backpack to go outside you just need something to carry your stuff um yeah. and then we can like grow to fit those niches at, like as people need them so with the past guiding experience and outdoor educational experience that you have, what is a piece of advice that you could offer to other women to help gain confidence in adventuring alone or with others? This one is tough. I think the most helpful thing is to find a friend who will go with you. Um, I personally hate camping alone. I'll do it. Um, but I have so much respect for women who will go do like full on solo trips um, by themselves. Like I, I feel pretty comfortable now, like being outside during the day by myself, but being outside in the dark just freaks me out. And I've had to just decide like, that's okay. And I'm just going to go with a friend. Um, so I think finding a friend is a really helpful way to do it, but I also know it can be really hard to find a friend to go with, especially another female friend. Um, and that's, that's still tricky for me, like finding partners who want to go do the same stuff that I want to do. Um, so I, I'd say like finding a friend or maybe extend that to like finding a community, even an online one or a community on Instagram or something of people that you can ask questions to and rely on. Um, and they're, I think, I think it's really helpful to like get that advice from people and be able to ask the question that seems like a stupid question to you. Cause I'm sure 10 other people have the same question too. I think it's a nice reminder that, uh, we were all new at this once and we all had the same thoughts. I'm sure there were very many weird questions and thoughts that I had getting into backpacking of like, oh, why do we do things this way or X, Mm -hmm. Y, and Z? And I think having that person and that guide and mentor to help walk you through it. And I think you also mentioned something important, finding someone to go with you for that same activity. But I also think finding someone who matches your level, right? Like, yeah, not everyone wants to go do 15 miles in a day. Some people just want to get comfortable, like setting their tent up, sleeping with all the noises and they just don't want to do it alone. But I do think finding that outdoor community and something I've noticed in the past five years, and I'm sure you've noticed even more if you've been in this Mm -hmm. uh, industry for almost 10 is, the power of online communities for women Mm -hmm. has grown exponentially. So I know whatever state or country that you're in, there's probably a women's hiking group that you haven't just found or tapped into or women's skiing or women's outdoor whatevering, because there are so many great communities and groups out there that want to help empower women and all of these different options and ways that you can tap in, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, things like that. So it's great to know that those resources are out there and there are other people who want to get out and just need to find that person to match. So I don't know if you have any resources or tips for people in terms of like finding that community, but, uh, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, this is also making me think about the piece of advice to, to guys too. And I would say just like piece of advice to anyone who has experience, like I would say try it and bring one new person in, in the next year, if you can, like whether that's into your friend group or just like into what you're doing. Um, I think that's a really great way to give back to all these activities that we love to do. Um, I've been really impressed here in Durango. There's an awesome uh, meetup group on the meetup app called Durango Sladies. Um, And it's so rad to see like a couple of really crusher women who have set up the whole thing. And um, I've been able to work a, a climbing day for them before, but that, that was a really great idea to me. Like it wouldn't take too much to set up a similar type of situation in other places too. Um, I would say too, if anyone's listening to this and they just really feel like they don't know where to start, like send me a message and I'll help connect you to someone somewhere. Um, but I think local gear shops can be a great place to look to, um, local guiding companies. A lot of companies will do women specific trips or just like different affinity group trips. Um, and some of them have resources for other like clubs or groups that you can get to meet. Um, likewise, climbing gyms are a great place to meet people. I'm not much of like a paddler, so I don't know exactly how that works, but I would say like whatever part of the outdoor world you are interested in, like go insert yourself if you can and just like see if you can meet someone. Cause I think it's really intimidating to do that first step of like just showing up. Um, but usually in my experience, people have been more receptive than I expected them to be. This has been a really thought provoking conversation. And I hope if anyone is listening and has any feedback or questions, please definitely reach out to us or Hannah. Um, And also where can the listeners find you and your gear at Hannah? For sure. Um, My website is soalpine.com, but it's a play on words. So S-E-W Alpine. Um, because puns are fun and because I think it's important to not take ourselves too seriously. Um, my Instagram is so underscore Alpine. And then if any, so like, feel free to send me messages too, if you have questions about any of this, or, um, people can also email us at so Alpine at Gmail. Um, we do, it is just me full-time and then two other gals who help out part-time like contract work. So sometimes I'm a little slow to respond, but I will respond. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and trying to answer some of these really difficult questions. So we definitely commend you and all the work you've done over the past year. It's been great to watch you grow. I remember seeing your Instagram account pop up and seeing what you were doing and because there aren't many women led cottage companies. Um, I hope that there are people listening to this and know that they can go from a one lady team to potentially having contract workers within less than a year. So I hope people hear that and become inspired to do so. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I'm so grateful for the whole Ripped Up by the Royal community and this podcast too. Like I've learned so much and um, really appreciate all the resources that you all put out for everybody. Thanks for joining us today, Hannah. We appreciate you sharing some time with us out of your, your busy small business morning. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.